We're a week out from the Easter holidays, for some. For some of us, Easter holidays are a thing of the past. We wish to still had two weeks off coming up. But as a culture, we are moving towards Easter, aren't we? If you go to Tesco, all you can see is chocolate eggs, as far as the eye can see. And as a church, we are moving towards Easter. We've been going through this account of the life of Jesus, in, written by this guy Mark. And at the end of these uh, chapters, he slows right down. He spends the majority, it seems, of, of his time on these last few days of the life of Jesus, and specifically the last 24 hours. Jesus is going to die. And as we land here this afternoon, we're coming back to, to where we were last week. We're coming back to a garden. Hopefully this is going to work. Maybe it's not. I'm just going to keep pressing. Oh, oh, there you go. The Garden of Gethsemane. Unlike Ian Jones, I've never been to Israel. I've never visited this place but this is the, what they think, the Garden of Gethsemane, on the, the hill of the Mount of Olives, opposite the, the city of Jerusalem, opposite the, the Temple Mount where the Temple was. And Jesus has gone there to, to pray. He knows that his moment has arrived. And he's gone there with his disciples to pray. And, and last week Ian um, spoke to us from the, the previous passage, which we've just read it again, of Jesus' distress, torment, battle as he faces what is to come. And as he prays, he takes three of, the close, of his closest disciples with him sort of inward into the garden and they sleep. They can't keep their eyes open. And we're told, and Sarah's just read it in verse 4, 31, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Here we go. So this is roughly the view. So Ian had his own photo last week. I've just ripped this off Google. Okay. But this is roughly the view from the Garden of Gethsemane back towards the city. The, the dome of the rock there, the, the, the mosque that's there now, was, there would have been the temple. The, the second temple. And as Jesus finishes praying in the garden, we're told that it's night. It's night time, it's cold, and we can imagine what happens as Jesus finishes praying, as he looks out across the valley, the valley of, of Kidron, and sees a large mass of people walking their way over towards the Garden of Gethsemane. We're told that they had lights, torches, flames, and you can imagine as this, this mass of people moves towards the garden. And Jesus says to his disciples, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And this is the first thing we're going to look at. Jesus' hour has come. As the mob arrives, there might be a picture. Okay, search for mob, Simpsons mob. It's kind of what it looks like. Can you imagine the dark, the, the flames of the torches? Can you imagine the mass of people moving across the valley? Jesus' hour has come. He says to his sleepy disciples, no more messing around. This is it. The hour. 
My hour has come. John, John makes much more of this phrase, the hour, in his account of the life of Jesus. But Jesus sees it like this. For all of his life, all of his 33 years, there's been a clock ticking. Slowly ticking towards one moment. The culmination of his life's work. A storm is coming. And it has now arrived. That's the realisation that comes to Jesus. The hour has come. And it's marked. It's marked by two things. Jesus is betrayed. And Jesus is abandoned. Jesus is betrayed. And Jesus is abandoned. I'm going to take that off the screen. So it's going to distract me. Who's the, the key guy here? It's Judas. Notice in two verses, Mark changes the description of him. So verse 42, Jesus says, Here comes my betrayer. A man defined by one act. But verse 43, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. It's almost as if Mark's trying to get us to say, Oh, but surely not Judas. Even though he's already told us that Judas has decided in his heart that he's going to betray Jesus. He's left the Last Supper. He's gone out. As Jesus has marked him out, he's disappeared off into the night. And yet still Mark's trying to, to bring our attention to this, these two things. That Judas is both one of the twelve. One of the 12 chosen men who've spent three years following Jesus day and night, who've seen and heard everything Jesus has done and said. One of his inner circle. Now defined as a betrayer. My betrayer, Jesus says, of Judas. And Mark's going to continue with the contrast. Because in walks Judas... With this great crowd. And we're told in verse 44, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. That tells us that some of the crowd at least don't know who Jesus is. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi. And kissed him. Simultaneously, Judas offers a term of respect, rabbi, teacher, and sticks the proverbial knife into Jesus' back. He kisses him. The original kiss of death. This is the man. This is the one you are to seize, to take hold of, to arrest. Jesus' hour has come and it is marked by betrayal. Psalm 55, written by David, mirrors and prophesies this exact moment. A king, God's chosen king, experiences betrayal. He writes this in Psalm 55, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide But it is you, 
a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshippers. Mark's account is brief and brutal and, and doesn't give us much cause to, to stop and reflect, but, but maybe we should. Maybe we should part, try and put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, sandals, probably. And as, as Judas walks into the garden, at the head of this crowd, what is Jesus thinking? Is he like David was, remembering former times? Remembering where they'd been, what they'd done. Remembering good conversations, encouraging chats. How could he? How could Judas betray Jesus? I think that's the question we've got to ask. How could Judas do it? And ultimately it comes down to this. Jesus was, was not who he thought he was. We're told elsewhere that Judas had become a, a thief. He was in charge of the money back. This band of disciples following Jesus around. He was the treasurer. And he'd come to a point of deciding that money was more helpful to him than it was to Jesus. Money was more impressive than what Jesus was offering. And ultimately, he just didn't believe that Jesus had the best for him. Jesus was betrayed. But Jesus was also abandoned. Abandoned by everyone else we started Sarah read from verse 26 the the start of their movement to the, the Mount of Olives and that passage starts with this Jesus telling his disciples quoting from Zechariah in the Old Testament you will all fall away for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and now as they leave the garden That's exactly what has happened. Just a few short hours later, they have all fled. See it there in verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Where's Peter? Where is Peter of the bold claims? If all the others fall away, I will never. He's gone. Where are James and John who were with Peter, brought into the inner circle? Nowhere to be seen. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Again, and we, we read part of this psalm earlier, Psalm 27. I think it said Psalm 105 on the... Uh, ignore that. It's Psalm 27. David writing. He says this, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And again we get this echo of God's chosen king, forsaken by those closest to him one of the songs we sing puts it like this lone and friendless he climbs towards the hill this is where we find jesus this is the hour abandoned and then we get this funny little add-on that's only found in mark about the naked man don't ever say the bible's not real okay because 
you just wouldn't add this in. I don't know why it's there. A young man, verse 51, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It doesn't seem to add anything to the story, except for to, to re-emphasize the point that Jesus is alone. A lot of people seem to think this is Mark himself. Read later in, in Acts is the story of the early church that Mark's house or his mum's house is in Jerusalem and it's a big place where the church was meeting. So maybe he lives nearby. Maybe he joined in. We, we don't know. But we do know not just that everybody deserted him, but here's a specific example. Everybody deserted him. This is the hour. Jesus stands alone. It's his, his task alone. For no one else can do what Jesus has come to do. But he is alone in the task. And we can ask the question, isn't Jesus asking the question, is it worth it? Here. He came to seek and to save the lost. But are they worth seeking? Are they worth saving? Because even the close, those closest to him are, are gone. Is it worth it for people such as these? For Judas's and Peter's? For Ben's? Let's just stop here just for a moment and just, just think about how that applies to us. Firstly, I want to say all of Jesus' followers fail him. Here in this account, but everywhere. Take heart. We should take heart. That there is not one follower of Jesus who has not failed him. There's not one of his closest earthly friends that does not fail him here. There's not one church leader, elder, who has not failed Jesus many times. But our failures do not deter Jesus from the cross. They are not more powerful than the love that God has for us. We might rightly ask, how can God love people such as us, such as me, but we know that Jesus goes onwards. Their failure does not deter him. Secondly, Jesus knows what it is to feel alone. To be surrounded by a crowd of people and yet to be utterly alone. Jesus knows what it is to be alone because of doing the right thing. Perhaps even this week or recently you found yourself in that situation at school or at work where you know that to do the right thing will put you on the outside. Perhaps you felt it at home. Perhaps you felt it in, a, in your marriage. That to, to know that to do the right thing, to speak up, to say something will, will sour the relationship and will leave you feeling friendless. As though you're the only one walking this path. Jesus knows what it is to feel 
alone. Hebrews 4, let me read to us. Talking about Jesus and his, his work. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jesus knows what it is to be alone, to feel alone, to feel as though he's the only one walking this path. But there is hope. Some of these situations you think, is it worth it? Is it worth carrying on taking this stand? Because we all want to be liked, don't we? And we all want to be loved. And loneliness is hard. But we look to Jesus. The risen, ascended Jesus who stands in heaven on our behalf. And he knows what you are going through. He is praying for you. Interceding for you. Knowing your struggle. Strengthening you in your struggle. Saying, It's worth it. Carry on. Hold to the faith. Isn't it good to know that Jesus has stood in our shoes? Let's move on and ask the second question. Is is Jesus leading a rebellion? Because that's the question in the middle of this passage. Is Jesus leading a rebellion? The rebellion. That's the question that Jesus asks. As the the crowd comes in, who are they? Well, we're told they're a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. That that last grouping of people combines all of the the religious authorities, all the different groups that, that made up the religious council, the Sanhedrin. So they're all involved... We're told in one of the other gospel accounts that there's also a group of Roman soldiers. We're told it's a, possibly a cohort, up to 600. Whether there are that many, we, we don't know. So there are both religious authorities slash thugs, the ones that they've sent, but also then the civil authorities, the Romans who rule over the land. Some of their men have come, as well as Judas. And they come carrying swords and clubs and torches. And as they come in, Jesus, as as Judas marks out Jesus, Jesus asks this question, am I leading a rebellion? What do they think that Jesus is going to do? What do they think The threat is from Jesus that they come like this at night. Because Jesus asked the question, doesn't he? He says to them, look, every day I was with you, verse 49, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. You did nothing. He's exposing their methods and their, their heart. They see Jesus as a threat. And their only paradigm for the threat of somebody like Jesus who's risen up in popularity that the people are listening to and following 
all they can see is, is shaped by their experiences of their culture. See, the Jewish people have been taken over by the Roman Empire. And maybe their experience is looking to Rome. What happens when a new leader arrives? How does a, a new leader take power? It comes via war and power, murder. I went off on a massive sidetrack looking at the history of Roman emperors. Fascinating. But the amount of times that Roman emperors basically lose power is, it often happens by, by them being killed. So the few short Caesars, the one Augustus Caesar, the guy who was in power when Jesus was born, how does he come to power? Well, firstly, he's part of a group, and then basically they turn their back on each other and he wipes out the other guys. He's one of three, but he wants to be one of one. And so maybe as they look at Jesus, maybe the only thing they can think is, well, Jesus is going to try and take power like everybody else does, by force. He's going to rouse the crowds. He's going to get them together. There's going to be a fight. And we might lose. And maybe they think this because they're already feeling as though they're beginning to lose. The religious authorities, as they've come up against Jesus, and we've seen it a bit in, in Mark's account of the life of Jesus, when they try to challenge him, when they try to squash him, when they try to turn the crowds against him, they fail and fail and fail. Because Jesus is good and Jesus is wise. And as this mob arrives, it's as though they're expecting battles, war, murder, power plays. Because that is how kingdoms are won and lost. And we still think that's how kingdoms are won and lost. Of course, Jesus had done none of that. He had taught the good news. He had taught that the kingdom of God was coming. He had displayed his power through miracles. He had done good for people. Healing, restoring. He had loved the unlovely. He had challenged the authorities, sure. But not for authority's sake. But because they had squashed the people. Because they had placed burdens on the people that they could not lift he displayed his wisdom and his goodness and that had rocked the boat and the authorities feared him they feared that as he taught them about who God is and what he's like as he taught about the kingdom of God that people would see and hear Jesus and they would love what he was saying far more than they would love what he that they were saying What sort of man has that sort of power and doesn't end up making an attempt on the throne or the religious equivalent? They seek to counter the rise of Jesus with the same tactics and methods that defending a human kingdom would use. Kill the usurper. Get rid of Jesus. 
And Mark seems to be trying to draw our attention to that. Maybe we don't see it so much in our, our versions of the Bible, but four times he uses this word seize, to take hold. Take hold of Jesus, seize Jesus. Sometimes it's translated arrested. But this idea of grasping hold of him, putting their hands on him, taking him out, it's physical, it's brutal. They want rid of Jesus. Am I leading a rebellion? Asked Jesus. And it's, he's, he's trying to get them to say, hey, no. We can't pin any of the normal things that we'd expect to see in a rebellion on Jesus. But the heart of this is a misunderstanding about who Jesus is. Who is this man before them in the garden? Who is Jesus? That question is going to... We've been asking at the start of Mark's account. Who is this man that can calm the storm? Who is this man that can tell somebody that your sins are forgiven? Who can heal the paralyzed man? Who is this man who can feed the masses and the multitudes from just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish? Who is he? And as we draw near to the end of Jesus' life, people are still asking the same question. Let me read down into the next section and just listen. As Jesus goes on trial, as they've taken him away, look at verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Who are you? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. They ask him, are you the one that was prophesied by Daniel? Daniel chapter 7. Are you the one sent by God? The one who is going to rule and reign over all this world? The one who is the only man who will walk into the presence of God and be accepted and rewarded and given the the dominion of all times and all people. I am, says Jesus. You see, he is a king. He is the king who will rule over all people and all nations, who is greater even than the Romans. And yet his kingdom is not of this world. He's not coming in to destroy a particular empire. He's coming to love and to save and to judge. To rescue. He is a king whose people will reign with him. Daniel 7 points us towards that. A people who will glory in his glory, who will share in his joy, who will delight in him and his work. Ultimately, he is a king who will do people good, but not in the way they're expecting. And we've already seen that Judas didn't get it. So Judas was looking for this king who was going to destroy the Romans and reestablish Israel. 
But Jesus, but Jesus wasn't that king. God's kingdom cannot be thwarted by human powers and human methods. That's why Jesus looks and says, you've got it wrong. You've misunderstood. To come with clubs and swords, you've missed the point. You cannot stop God's king using human methods. Jesus cannot be manhandled out of the picture. And we find the same thing about the king's people, or as we call it, the church. The church cannot be destroyed by human rulers or regimes. And there's 2,000 years of history of people trying to kill off God's people, to squash them. And people have flourished despite persecution because the church cannot be destroyed by human rulers or human regimes or be manhandled out of the picture. Or as Romans 8 tells us, what can separate us, the people that God has set his love upon, from the love of God? Nothing. The worst that the world can do to Jesus is to put him to death. The worst that the world can do to the followers of Jesus is to put them to death, to reject them. And in neither case does the world get what it wants. This is a different kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. And this just event here is giving us a foretaste that they've misjudged it because they've not seen truly who Jesus is. That Jesus is the king who turns the world upside down. They come to seize Jesus, to take hold of him. And as they do so, they play a role in achieving the purposes of God. For the kingdom of God is not defeated by the seizing of Jesus. The kingdom of God draws nearer as they take hold of him. For this is God's plan. This is the word that must be fulfilled, that they will strike the shepherd. But that's not the end of the story. We've called this series, The King and His Cross. And it's in this very moment we see the king who is defined by his cross. What sort of king is he? Is he a worldly king? The next power? No, he's the one whose rejection proves his goodness. It proves that his kingdom will last beyond this world. So as we close, let's notice that there are implications for us. If Jesus is the king whose kingdom is not of this world, what does that mean for followers of the king? Perhaps you notice that even as we're saying this, even as they come with swords, it's one of Jesus' own followers. Verse 47, one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ears. One of Jesus' own followers elsewhere, we're told that it's Peter, no surprise there, Jumping in. Using the methods that Jesus is saying here are the wrong ones. They've missed the point of who Jesus is. Jesus does not need defending here. 
But Mark's going to get back to Peter's mistake very shortly. There are plenty more mistakes from Peter to come. But he's interested in in leaving it there, in the middle of this description, as a, a point of contrast to Jesus. Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the crowd and of Judas, but he submits to it, for this is God's plan. The sword bearer, or Peter, tries to fight fire with fire, or sword with sword. But Jesus' kingdom does not come by war and force. We've already reflected on that. It comes by grace and truth. So let's finish with four kingdom consequences for, for us, for the church. Firstly, oh, hang on. Oh, yeah, somebody already did it. And I've taken it off. <clears throat> Firstly, the church is to do good. Whether we are respected or rejected, we are to do good to others. We are to love people, to love family, to love friends, neighbours, even enemies. Jesus is our example in this. Even as he exposes them, he submits. We're told elsewhere that he heals the ear of the man who was struck by Peter. Secondly, the church is to hope in the promises of God. As Jesus submits to the prophecies of Scripture, so we must put our hope in the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus. That he will not abandon us. That this world is not all that there is. That Christ will return. That God does save and he does forgive And he does restore, and he does reconcile, and he does redeem even us. Thirdly, the church must not forget that it is Christ alone who stood firm. His righteousness alone is the basis for our confidence. Our place in this story is found alongside the fleeing disciples, naked, and exposed for our lack of faith, afraid and bewildered. But Jesus stood. We dare not be proud. We dare not look round at other people and think that we're better. For it is only Jesus who stood firm. Fourthly, the church must seize Jesus. Again, Mark makes this big thing of the crowd coming, the mob coming to take hold of Jesus. But ultimately, the church must take hold of Jesus, individually and together. We must take hold of him, not as they did, not to destroy him, but to take hold of him, the king of the kingdom that goes beyond this world. That's where we find life. That's where we find that we are healed. That's where we find that our faith is built. That's where we find that we become effective to live for Jesus in this world when we we take hold of him, when we intentionally believe in who he is and what he's done. And we do it as we pray. We do it as we turn to the Bible, as we read the Bible, as we investigate and dig into what God has and continues to say to us. 
The church must seize Jesus through discipleship as we are involved in each other's lives, speaking the truth and the wisdom of the Lordship of Jesus, King Jesus, into each other's lives, into the everyday moments, into our parenting, into our singleness, into our relationships, marriages, friendships, into our doubts and fears, into our struggles and strengths. That's why we encourage you to be part of our home groups. To take one intentional step to say, I want to do this life together. I need people to tell me and point me to that Jesus is King. And that he'll continue to be King tomorrow and forever. That's why we encourage one-to-ones. People reading the Bible together, praying together. Praying for those more personal, intimate things that you can't share with everybody. Doubts and failings and struggles. If you'd like to be reading the Bible with somebody, come and grab one of the elders. We'd, we'd love to point you, either we'd meet you with you or somebody else. The church must seize, take hold of Jesus day by day. We do it as we sing. So we gather together to sing. We don't do it because we're brilliant singers. We do it because the truths that we sing are good for each other. They help us take hold by faith of Jesus. That's why singing is so important. It helps us to learn who Jesus is. It helps to remind us as the person behind us sings, as the person in front of us sings. They are singing, we are singing to each other of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. That's why we often close our, well pretty much all the time, close our our time together by singing trying to sing in the truth of God's word. So we're going to do that in a moment. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing of Jesus, our living hope, to close our time together. But let me pray. Father, we confess that we know just what it is to stand in the shoes of the disciples to flee. Father, we confess that we know something of of what it is to be Judas. Lord, to, to turn our back on you. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to take hold of Jesus, even as we sing now, even as we talk off the back of this time together, As we go out into our weeks, help us to help one another to take hold of Jesus by your spirit prompting and leading, by his wisdom. Help us to take hold of Jesus, we pray. Amen.